Thank you for listening to Weekly Wisdom, the podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Haddonfield, New Jersey. This episode is a sermon preached by Reverend Marvin Lindsay titled, Matchmaker, Make Me a Match. It's based on Genesis chapter 24, the story of Abraham and his servant's search for a suitable wife for Abraham's son, Isaac. In this sermon, Reverend Lindsay uses the story to make some points about how we make important life decisions. We hope that you enjoy it. that a week from today is our 29th wedding anniversary. And so I've been thinking about that this week um, and thinking about how it was that we got together. Some of you have asked us this question, and so I've told some of you, but now you all get to hear the story, even you people online. Um, Laura and I met our freshman year of college at a Presbyterian campus ministry event across the street from North Carolina State University. And we were eating dinner together, and Laura asked me, where are you from? And I said, Fayetteville. And she scowled. People often do that when I tell them I'm from Fayetteville. And she said, what high school did you go to? And I said, I went to 71st High School. And she said, I went to West Charlotte. Now, it so happens that nine months prior to our meeting, uh, 71st High School had defeated West Charlotte High School for the state for a football championship. Three nothing. It was a last second field goal. The West Charlotte fans are convinced the refs called a no good field goal. Good. It's my first exposure to conspiracy theories in my in my life. And I said to Laura, "Oh, we beat you." And um, it took me two and a half years to get her to go out with me for some reason. I don't know No, actually, uh, Laura. I'm, I think we've said this before, I'm a grudge holder of the family, so Laura did not hold a two and a half year grudge. It just so happened that one or both of us was always uh, dating somebody else, but as soon as we were both single at the same time, which was my dad's funeral day, which is a whole other story, we managed to get together. We have a rom-com story, but I'm not going to give you all of the, all the details. Now, uh, it is kind of a rom-com story, but it's also pretty conventional. According to the website Zola, which is this wedding registry and wedding planning website, uh, meeting at school and meeting at church are two of the most common ways that people meet each other. Some of the other common ways include meeting at work, which can be tricky, uh, meeting online, which was not an option when Laura and I were uh, meeting each other, uh, meeting uh, through friends and through family, and uh, even meeting at bars. It's not for uh, one-night stands only. Um, meeting via an arranged marriage in which uh, servants from the principal uh, parties who happen to be different branches on the same family tree coming together to negotiate over dowries, that is not a way in which most Americans meet before they get married. And so, you know, we're dealing with a story from a very different time and place and culture. What can this story say to us? I think it can say a lot to us, actually, despite some of the important differences in the cultural background. I think it does reveal some decision-making principles that transcend time and place and that we as Christians can put to good use whether we're trying to decide whether to get married or to whom we should get married or should we move to a new community or should we take a certain job or uh, should we go to a certain college or pursue some other uh, career option. 
And the three principles are this. First of all, to make a good decision, you have to know who you are and whose you are. The second decision is this. Your past is a resource, but it's not the destination. And then the third principle is, when you're making a decision, look for God's hidden hand, ordering affairs toward God's chosen purpose. So I want to break those down each in order. The first one is this. If you want to make a good decision, you've got to know who you are and whose you are. Abraham is putting his affairs in order before he dies. And part of that putting his affairs in order involves finding a wife for his son Isaac. And so he sends his most senior and most trusted servant back to Abraham's hometown of Haran, several hundred miles away, to bring a bride home for Isaac, because he doesn't want Isaac to marry one of the local girls. Now, uh, understand this, uh, it's not really like uh, any kind of ethnic prejudice at all. The word Canaanite in the Bible is more of a theological term than an ethnic term. You see, Abraham has this very strong bond with the God who called him to leave his home, his hometown, everything he knew, and go to this place that he didn't know where he was going, trusting that God would give him children in his old age, and that these children would have a special mission to bring a blessing to the entire world. Abraham is worried that if his son marries uh, a Canaanite, someone who worships many gods, none of them are Abraham's gods, then that uh, union might dilute the strength of Isaac's commitment to this God. And remember, Isaac is a gift from this God, from the Lord God. And so for Abraham, it's inconceivable that there should be any slippage between the gift and the giver. So he sends his servant to find a suitable bride. When we're making important decisions, some options for us as the household of God are off the table from the get-go. For no other reason than the God we belong to. For no other reason than who we are and whose we are. By faith and through the sacrament of baptism, we belong to Jesus Christ. And that means we too are descendants of Abraham and Sarah. We too are God's gift to the world, God's instrument and means of blessing the world. As such, we're not free to make important life decisions simply based on what is convenient for us or what is pleasing to us. It is first and foremost the God whom we worship that we must put at the center of making decisions. And it is God's calling to us to be a blessing to the world around us that we have to center if our decisions are going to be pleasing to God and are going to be sound and stable in the long term. Second principle is this. The past is a resource. It's not a destination. So Abraham's servant gets this assignment. I mean, you've got to feel sorry for the guy. He's, you know, he's like a household manager. He's, like a, uh, he's a security guard. He's a, uh, a, a part-time warrior. Uh, and now he's a matchmaker. And he's already thinking, I don't know if this is like uh, really, I'm really good for this, and I can see how this is going to go off the rails right quick. What if I find someone who is a suitable match, but they're not willing to come back here? You know, what do I come back here and bring Isaac back to Haran to, to marry this person? 
And Abraham says, no. She has to come here. He cannot go to her. He cannot return to Haran, no matter how suitable she might be. You see, Abraham and Sarah, they left Haran, left behind all that was stable and safe and secure and familiar to them for the sake of God's call and claim on their life and for the sake of the hope that they would be given offspring and these offspring would bless all the nations of the world. If Abraham's son were to return home, then that would repudiate the great leap of faith that this couple made. And it would also scuttle God's plan to heal the human race. That's just unthinkable for Abraham. Their old world, their former life, will provide a partner for Isaac, which is essential for the next generation to get going. But this family's future is here in Canaan, not back there. You see, when you belong to the God of Abraham and Sarah, there is no going back. And when it comes to churches and congregations these days, when we make that realization, often that realization comes with a great deal of heartache. Some of us remember the days when the churches were full and there were traffic jams on Sunday morning because of church, not because of a craft fair in Haddonfield. And some of us miss those days. We think to ourselves, if we can only get back to where we used to be, maybe we need to start doing the things that we were doing back then. Maybe that's how we would get back there. Maybe we need the theology or the programming or the worship experiences that packed the churches in the 1950s and 60s. Well, just because the churches are smaller today than they were 70 years ago doesn't mean that they are not going to be larger in the future. They may be smaller still, they may be the same size, they may be larger. My crystal ball broke a long time ago. I don't know what the future holds. I do know that much depends on the wind of the Holy Spirit. How and where it blows, and on our willingness to voice the sail, and be guided and strengthened and empowered by that Spirit as we sail into the future. But what worked in the past won't necessarily work in the present or in the future. We can learn from the past, but we can't recreate the past. We can't live there. And in fact, even if we could, I think the story indicates that we're forbidden from returning there. We can only live in a present that God is continually pulling into the future. A future in which there is blessing and resurrection for the whole human race, which now is under suffering and travail. The third decision-making criteria is this. We need eyes and ears to see and hear the silent and hidden God in the ordering of our affairs. So how did this sermon find a sermon? How did this sermon where is the sermon going? How did this sermon how did this sermon get written? How did this uh, sermon find the right woman for his master's son? Well, first he undertook the journey, assured by Abraham that the Lord would go before him and that the Lord would make uh, his path clear along the way. And then when he arrived at Haran uh, at the well, he prayed and he asked for a sign. He said, okay, I'm going to ask someone for a drink of water and uh, the one that says, well, have a drink and I'll water your camels as well. Let her be the one. And so he sees this pretty young woman coming to the well. 
And so he asks her, may I have a drink? And she says, sure. And she says, you know, it looks like you've come a long way. Maybe your camels need some water as well. I'd be happy to water them. Uh, another, another Old Testament scholar says, not only is Rebecca pretty, but she also has superhuman strength because uh, to water 10 camels takes 200 gallons of water. So uh, Rebecca must be one of these uh, really pretty ultimate fighter women that you see on Instagram. I, you know, anyway, I don't know. Um, but the point is that she responds to the servant in language that's eerily similar to the, the language that he's asking God for a sign about. You think that's a coincidence? I don't think so. I don't think the scripture wants us to think so. So, the servant doesn't think it's a coincidence either, but he needs to move this along a little bit. So he gives her some jewelry, he gives her bracelets, he gives her a nose ring. Yes, our ancestors of faith wore nose rings. That's so cool. And he asks her a question. Who are you? Who are your people? And she says, my name is Rebecca. And as it turns out, she's the granddaughter of Abraham's brother. And that is perfect. She's a first cousin once removed. And if you think that's creepy, marrying your first cousin once removed is legal in 44 states. I looked it up on Wikipedia this weekend. Some ancient customs are not nearly as ancient as we think. What this happy coincidence means is that Rebecca can be counted on to bolster Isaac's loyalty to the Lord God. The God who called his father on this journey and the God who created him, gave him birth. And when the servant relates all of this to Rebecca's brother Laban, Laban says, well, this must be a God. I mean, this is out of our hands. Take her. You know, take her back. And the next day, this isn't in the passage that we read, Laban tries to delay the departure, maybe because he wants Isaac to come back to him and he'd be a great brother-in-law. Rebecca puts her foot down and she says, no, I'm going. I'm going. My Old Testament professor, Walter Brueggemann, observed once that a secularist who reads this story will see nothing more than coincidence. And there's a certain kind of religious believer who won't see the hand of God at work in events like this because they're looking for something more uh, spectacular. You know, signs, wonders, miracles, healings. That's when God shows up. But when we pray and when we act in good faith, we are given eyes and ears to see and hear the invisible God working in our lives. And working in the decisions we have to make. We see that it is God who is the ultimate cause of the events unfolding around us and through us. That's who the servant sees. Now, what does Laban see? Have y'all talked about Laban yet in your Bible study? Okay, keep your eye on Laban. I mean, like, sleep with one eye open uh, when you're around, around Laban. Does Laban see the hand of God at work, or are his eyes bedazzled by the blame on his sister and the loot that is mounted up on these camels in train? You can imagine uh, a modern version of this conversation uh, between a young woman and her closest male relative. Dad? Yes, dear. Dad, I met someone that's getting pretty serious. Oh, is that right? 
Yes, Dad, but we're going to get married this summer and we're moving across the country. What? You're doing what? Yes, Daddy. His father owns a hedge fund and we're moving to Greenwich because he's going to take over. Well, praise the Lord. It's got to be God's will, right? Eh, maybe not. Not everything that works out is necessarily God's will. And sometimes it is God's will that some things don't work out. But at other times, God orders things that bring about, shall we say, less joyful results than a wedding and a long and happy marriage. Uh, in my own life, uh, I clearly discerned a call to ministry in a particular congregation. And that call was confirmed by a series of happy coincidences that were greatly beneficial for members of my family. And I am convinced that that call was God's will, that going there was God's will. And it was also a very difficult and stressful experience. The God of Abraham, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, works behind the scenes to grant us success, as God did for Abraham's servant. And God also offers us a cross to bear as God did for our Lord Jesus Christ, so God offers to each of us who are in Christ. Whether our decisions bring us joy or heartache, God is always at work in the midst of them, both in the decisions and in the consequences. And through trust in God and through prayer, we can see the hidden God ordering events and the presence of, and power of God at work in our lives. Sometimes chance encounters lead to uh, big events, like encounters at ancient wells or in the basements of Presbyterian churches. Mostly they don't. But whether they do or not, sometimes has to do with the choices we make. And in fact, every day we make all kinds of choices about matters great and small, and the results of those choices have impacts, both great and small. As you make decisions, Remember that you belong to God, and God has a plan for you to bring a blessing to the world around you. While you remember not only that you belong to God, and you remember your life experiences and the history that you come into this moment with, remember that the past can be a resource for you, but your final destination is the future. A future in which God raises the world to new and abundant and eternal life. Trust that God is already at work around you, setting events in motion and putting things in place. It's not up to you to fix it, to make it work, to make everything turn out okay. It's simply your task to believe and to trust and see what the Lord can do. In the name of the one who is, as he was, and who is to come. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review this podcast so that we can reach more people with the good news of Jesus Christ. To support our ministry, go to www.haddonfieldprez.org and click on the Give tab at the top of the page. Grace and peace be with you.